Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant, and Chris Smith. How's the world of science for you? Anything exciting happening? Well, yes, actually. We've had a very sort of dry summer, which is very good, paradoxically, for the spread of mosses. Mosses are amazing. You might think, why why talk about moss? In fact, they cover about one and a half million square kilometres of the Earth's surface, which is about 1% of the planet's surface. So any bit of planetary surface that's land that you can see... About 1% of that is just moss covering it. So how these species of plants, very cleverly adapted as they are, spread is quite an important question. And there's a really nice paper which has been published in Science this week. It's by two researchers in America, Dwight Whittaker and Joan Edwards. And they have taken very fast photography, 10,000 frames a second, to watch how moss spreads its seeds. Because one of the big questions is these little spores that, if you've looked at moss are produced on these little stems that grow up above the moss and they get ejected. One big question is how do those spores actually spread because measurements show they spread very long distances very quickly. It turns out actually that it's all about pressure and what these researchers managed to do was to watch the moss over a period of time. On a dry day they found the bobbles on these little stalks, the seed cases, they change shape. They go from being a nice round shape, spherical, into little cylinders. And this is by making the cells that actually surround these seed cases lose some of their thickness. So in other words, the whole thing is pulled into a cylinder. And as this happens, it pressurises the air inside the seed case. And the pressure actually goes up to, in fact, five times the pressure of the atmosphere. And this then causes, when it reaches a critical threshold, the seed case to rupture and it ejects the spores, almost like a ballistic missile. But what's very interesting is if you just calculate how fast the spores come out and then how far they actually go, they go much further than they should just on the basis of a spore being ejected. What they have found is that actually another trick is at play here, and this is a phenomenon called vortex rings. Now, if you've ever watched someone blow smoke rings or you've played with a vortex cannon or you've seen... Dolphins, for example, underwater, making bubbles, which are ring-shaped bubbles that they can propel through the water. This is quite common um, for um, underwater species to do this, and they play games with these bubbles. This is a, a clever trick which can actually make things go much further and much faster than they would do otherwise. Now, what's happening is that the cylindrical shape of the moss spore case makes a rising circle of air come out of the seed case and because that hits air which is stationary as it comes out it causes this ring of air to twist in on itself almost like a donut shape so what you get is a is a circle of air going round in little circles around the di- the diameter of the donut and because you get these waves being transferred into the air around the donut you end up with it actually pushing the ring through the air very very fast 
and in a very, very constrained way. So it's amazing to think that moss is exploiting this phenomenon to get its seeds much further than they would do. So there you go, vortex rings, not just a party trick, but also helps moss spread. Let's go to our questions now, because um, first of all, we've had a caller in from uh, Dom, and he says, um, yoghurt with friendly bacteria in it. Um, how is that a benefit to our health? How does it work? Chris? Well, originally people viewed the human body as just a collection of human cells with a few bacterial passengers that are hitching a free ride, they're freeloaders. But in recent years it's become increasingly clear that the bacteria that we carry on us and in us, which in fact outnumber us 50 to 1, there are 50 times as many bacterial cells living on us and in us as there are cells in our entire bodies, it's 50 trillion or so bacterial cells, so huge numbers, they play an important role in keeping us fit and healthy. Now, the first sign that this was the case was when researchers studied animals that were reared in artificial circumstances. They can be born by caesarean section in a laboratory and then kept sterile. So they're kept in a sterile environment and you can compare the health of animals like that with the health of animals born the normal way and reared in an environment where there are bacteria. And animals that are in a sterile environment don't grow very well, they don't put on weight very well and they're just sickly compared with animals that are covered in bacteria. And this sounds a bit counterintuitive until you think, well, what are these bacteria that are on us and what are they doing? And this has led to the whole concept of something called the metagenome. So rather than just the genome, meaning the human genome, all three billion DNA letters that make up our genetic blueprint, you now have to take into account the thousands of strains of bacteria that live in us and on us because they all have their own genomes and we are borrowing the genetic know-how, the biochemical know-how of those bacteria to get more bang for our buck from the food we eat, for example, and also to protect us from other pathogens in the environment. So these bacteria are hitching a ride off of us, but they're also helping us to keep healthy. They keep other invaders out by taking up space and nutrients, and in return, they help us to extract from the food we eat more nutrients and do chemical tricks that we don't have the genetic ability to do but the bacteria can, and that means we're healthier. They can make vitamins for us, for example, because they have genes that enable them to do that, that we don't, and they can also extract extra calories from food. And, it turns out, this might be important in how much you weigh, because researchers are now showing, there's a guy called Jeff Gordon, he's in St. Louis at Washington University in America, he's shown that there are strains of mice that can be fat and there are strains of mice that are thin and if you take the bacteria from the guts of the fat mice and put them into the thin mice the thin mice all gain weight because the bacteria they've got help them to get more energy from the food they eat so where do these sort of probiotic yogurts and things come in well the answer is when you get unwell this can disturb the balance of these bugs in your intestines and as a result your own health can suffer a bit so if you take these probiotics it's said this may help to restore the balance of the bacteria in you and therefore make you feel a bit better. The evidence is a bit sketchy. If you've already got very disturbed gut flora, there's evidence that it can help you. But in day-to-day -day life, your gut flora, the bacteria in you, are very stable indeed. They are more unique, actually, to you than your own fingerprints in terms of the spectrum of bugs you have in you. And unless something comes along, like a big dose of antibiotics or something, to disturb them, they are doing a great job for you throughout most of your life. And you probably don't need these sorts of supplements if you eat a healthy diet anyway.
Let's go to our next question. And uh, this has come from um, the uh, Twitter at Naked Scientists uh, from David Worley. He says, what do IQ scores actually measure? Oh, one of those questions we've all wanted to ask. Indeed. And if anyone wants to Twitter at us, actually, you just tweet to at Naked Scientists and we'll pick it up. Um, This is a very good question because if you look at what people were being asked in IQ tests 100 years ago, 50 years ago, um, and compare with today, the questions are very different. And also the world we live in is very different. People didn't have computers. Telephones were a rarity. The odd people had cars 50 years ago. They weren't commonplace and expected to be found in every home. And as a result, the way in which we tend to engage with the world around us, the way our reasoning works, this has all changed. And when people do these IQ tests, in fact, the scores that people are getting on average are going up three points every decade. In other words, three IQ points per 10 years. So if you were to look about 30 or 40 years ago, you would find that people were actually intellectually subnormal compared with what we call average IQ today. And this is so-called the Flynn effect. It's because the, the guy who noticed it was a researcher, Flynn, from New Zealand. And the point he makes in identifying this dramatic change is that IQ tests really only reflect uh, the world in which we grow up in. So there are a set of questions which are designed to basically assess your underlying intelligence, the so-called G in your brain. And yes, you can do various tests and you can demonstrate that some people appear to be better at these tests than others, but they are very, very sensitive to the education you've had and the upbringing you've had. So you can take somebody who is a bushman in Africa who is very intelligent and would have certainly no problem doing certain things which are a strong test of intelligence, but faced with some of these tests would perform as though he was ranked in the idiot category, which is obviously not true. So you have to be very careful how you interpret these intelligence tests, and they will, of course, always fail with some people. So the answer is they're there to try to tell us how certain bits of the brain function and how some people attack certain problems, but they can be biased and they can be affected by the upbringing and the environment in which we've been educated. Let's go to a text now. Um, This is from Claire, who says, Hi, Dr Chris, I really enjoyed your show at the Big Bang Fair. How did the toxic gases from the volcanic activity at the start of the Earth get neutralised? Well, the answer is that really they didn't, and they helped to contribute to the atmosphere of the early Earth. You're quite right, Claire, that when the early Earth was first born four and a half billion years ago, it was a pretty unpleasant place. There were volcanoes going off everywhere. The whole surface of the planet was molten at one time, partly because we were slammed into by uh, another planet the size of Mars called Thea, which didn't help. But all of these gases, including a lot of sulphur and a lot of methane and carbon dioxide and water, those gases would have done a number of things. One, they would have helped the Earth to build an atmosphere in the first place, and that atmosphere would have been smoggy, and it would have helped to trap some heat on the Earth. Two, volcanoes would have built land, and that land would have helped to stabilise the temperature of the Earth over time, because um, initially the Earth was a watery world, and water absorbs heat very well, land reflects heat very well. So as the Earth got older and got better at keeping itself warm, more land appeared, and this helped to reflect more heat off into space, preventing us from getting too cooked up. But in terms of the atmospheric composition, those volcanoes were pretty instrumental because they put these gases into the atmosphere, like CO2, which helped to act as a greenhouse, warming the early Earth up. And then, by about 3.9 billion years ago, life was flourishing on Earth. There were microbes, there were bacteria, and we think 
bacteria that broke down various chemicals to produce methane, so-called methanogens, and they then helped to make the atmosphere even more rich in greenhouse gases to help to increase the temperature further to the point at which more complicated life forms could survive. Because you have to remember, about four and a half billion years ago, the sun was very, very young, and the young sun was a lot cooler than it is today. The sun's radiation output, the heat output, has gone up by 30% or so since the Earth was very, very young. And so as a result, the Earth had to try a bit harder to keep the temperature in. So volcanoes did a good job at helping us to do that. Tobias Lee on Facebook has sent a question in. Two skydivers in freefall facing each other in close proximity. Um, the one on top pushes the one below away. In relation to the Earth, does the uppermost skydiver move up, the lower one down, or do both move in opposite directions? And does the answer change if they're at terminal velocity versus accelerating? We have to think about this uh, a number of ways. Probably the best example is if you think about the old question of if you've got people on an aeroplane and or you've got a bunch of birds in an aeroplane and the aeroplane is flying, so it's airborne, and the birds all suddenly take off from the aeroplane, does the plane suddenly weigh a lot less and therefore move up in the air or does it move down? What happens if all the passengers on a plane were to suddenly jump up in the air so they weren't pushing down on their seats anymore? What would happen to the height of the aeroplane? This is a sort of similar question. And the answer is that in order for the people or the birds to jump up inside the aeroplane, they've got to push down on the aeroplane. They're therefore applying a force to the aeroplane, and Isaac Newton's famous third law is that for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction, so the aeroplane would push back on the people, and therefore uh, the people go up in the air, but the aeroplane goes down. So the people go up, aeroplane goes down, and in the grand scheme of things, everything averages out. So with your skydivers, it's the same. If you've got two skydivers falling and one pushes on the other one, then he is going to accelerate the other guy down a little bit. He's going to accelerate up a little bit, um, and so therefore he will slightly reduce his rate of descent versus the other guy, um, but only transiently, and it will all balance out anyway. And if they're at terminal velocity, that doesn't really make much of an odds because they're just not accelerating down much more. So I don't think it will really make enormous amount of difference. Now then, um, Hussein has sent a um, question in, and he said, what is the longest cell in the human body? Hmm. There's probably a few contenders for this, but it's almost certainly a nerve cell. And nerve cells are very specialist cells because they're incredibly long. Uh, you have, uh, if you look at the anatomy of the average nerve, what's called a cell body. And this is like a little football with lots of little projections or ruffled up surface projections on it, which are called dendrites, which is the surface of the cell, which is how it receives connections from other cells. And then the cell extends a very thin cylindrical projection, which goes a long way away from the cell body and makes a connection to another nerve cell. And that distance, that long, thin cylindrical projection called an axon, can be up to a metre long in a human, and in a blue whale, it might be 30 metres long, because you've got a cell which is receiving inputs from the tail, or the skin of the whale's tail, and it's got to take it all the way back to the whale's spinal cord. In a person, therefore, probably the cells that are doing that are the, that are longest are those which are going from your spinal cord down to your big toe. And given that your legs are about a metre long, give or take, then that's the distance that those cells have got to cover. So you're probably looking at about a one metre long cell, and it's probably a nerve cell. Other big nerve cells in the body include muscle cells. And the, if you look at the muscles in your thighs, for example, in your quadriceps, there are muscle cells there which are the length of your quadriceps. 
And in fact, what's interesting about these muscle cells is that there are lots of cells merged together. If you look at a muscle cell, you find lots of nuclei, the little bits where the DNA is located in the cell, all merged together in one cell. And that's because lots of individual muscles all glued themselves together and make a, a giant cell by joining up together. And those individual cells become very, very long. So I'd say number one position, a nerve cell, probably the one going to your big toe from your spinal cord, and the number two position would probably be some muscle cells, including those in your quadriceps and your thighs. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. Let's go to now another question that has uh, come in. And Jenny in Northamptonshire um, has a question in regard to noctilucent clouds. She wondered what kind of colour one would see when you see them. They are often a green colour, generally like a red sunset. Chris? Yeah, that, that sort of fits together. The reason for that is these noctilucent clouds, which have been very, very in evidence lately. Um, in fact, a Naked Scientist listener and user of our forum, nakedscientist.com slash forum, Richard, has put some wonderful pictures that he took over Cambridge of noctilucent clouds recently on that forum. If you, if you look up noctilucent clouds naked scientists on the internet you'll you'll find his pictures we actually made them a picture of the week because they're they're so terrific mm. um these are very high clouds they're the highest clouds that can form in the earth's atmosphere they're said not to have existed prior to about 100 years ago they are because you get high up in the atmosphere particles that can condense water so they're water getting into the very high reaches of the atmosphere and we think they're about 50 kilometers up above the earth so very very much higher than most clouds would normally form and what causes them well possibly particles getting up that high earthbound pollution or earth earth originating pollution and specks of dust and things that are taken up there some people also blame space rockets because when the space rockets go up they go through these various layers of the atmosphere through the what's called the tropopause which separates the troposphere from the stratosphere and then into the mesosphere on the edge of space and they put water up there they put other particles and debris up there which can seed these clouds and you see them at night because they are so high up in the sky that even though the sun has sunk below our horizon those clouds can still be illuminated by the sun over the horizon because they're so high up in the air that it's still daylight for them if you sort of mean and that light is then channeled back down to earth because it's reflected off of those clouds and you, and you can see them and they are quite striking and they tend to be very common at this time of year Let's go to uh, our email now. This one has come in from uh, Gerald, and he says um, he's heard about the so-called smart drugs. One is modafinil, uh, which increases your concentration, reduces your need for sleep, and you can get much more done and be perky all day like a supercharged Sumatran. Don't know about that. <laughs> Cambridge University are running tests and are looking for volunteers for controlled experiments. What does Dr Chris think about these drugs? Yes, there's one called modafinil, which is the one that uh, you're mentioning. Um, these agents first, well, began to be investigated, I think about 10 years ago, and they do exactly as you have read out. 
they seem to increase concentration, they seem to reduce the need for sleep, and they enable people to improve their memory. There's a researcher at, uh, who was based at Cambridge University, I think she's still there, Danielle Turner, who, in, as part of her PhD, did some very interesting studies in the Department of Psychiatry at Cambridge University, looking at people given modafinil, including people who were to all intents and purposes, very intelligent, had perfectly good memory, and they found that their memory improved when they're given these drugs. So, therefore, there seems to be this, this memory-boosting ability of these drugs. The big question is, of course, how does that work, and what consequences might there be? Now, in America, there are a number of people who have had problems because they have taken modafinil to help them with their university exams, and unfortunately they've run out just before the exam. Um, and this means that they end up in the exam crashing because all of a sudden their energy dries up and their attention dries up and, and a lot of that memory they crammed on modafinil, they can't get access to the memories because they don't have the drug. It appears that there's no long-term side effects, but obviously we just don't know. And that's why research like this is very important. We want to understand what controls brain motivation, what controls memory, how is it encoded, and therefore, how can we maybe improve it, particularly amongst people who might have a memory deficit for whatever reason, either dementia or, for example, in someone who's had a head injury or some other kind of brain problem. Let's now go to uh, Les, who is in over, and he asked Chris, is there anything that could be f referred to as a good virus? Well, actually, researchers would have probably originally said no, but in more recent years, we're beginning to say... Yes. Now, an obvious example of, of viruses that prey on bacteria, and this was a field of research which got going in Russia in the early days, in Georgia. Um, the, uh, sorry, I should say the USSR, shouldn't I? Um, so in one of the former <laughs> Soviet states in Georgia, uh, this country began to explore extensively the use of bacteriophages. These are viruses that infect bacteria and kill them because they turn the bacterium into a virus factory, and out of the infected bacterium become, come hundreds of new bacteriophage particles, and those then infect other bacteria and kill them. And the beauty of bacteriophages is that they are very, very selective for the bacteria they attack. So what they were doing in that former Russian-Soviet state was they were finding bacteriophages that specifically attacked certain human pathogens and the best place to do this I'm told is to go to the sewage works or if you're in India another researcher who works on this told me the Ganges is a fantastic place to find these bacteriophages because it's full of sewage but because there's loads of bacteria there you find the bacterium that uh, you want to kill and then you screen lots of sewage until you find bacteriophages that infect that bacterium and then you can grow millions of these bacteriophage particles. They won't infect a human cell, but they will infect bacterial cells. And so you can take an, a person who has a bad bacterial infection, squirt some of these bacteriophages onto them, and the bacteriophages attack and kill the bacteria, amplifying the infectious dose of bacteriophages in the process until they run out of bacteria to infect, and then they just vanish. So it's a great way of killing bacteria. So that would be a sort of good virus. But there's a slight twist to this story, which is even more interesting, which is in the last three years or so, there was a researcher in America called Skip Virgin who published a paper in which they were looking at the herpes virus family. Now, this includes herpes simplex that causes cold sores, an Epstein-Barr virus that causes glandular fever, and cytomegalovirus that causes a virus infection a bit like glandular fever, causes similar symptoms. Now, there are similar versions of those viruses, glandular fever virus and the Epstein-Barr virus, that infect rodents. So what they were doing was seeing 
what would happen if you infected mice with these viruses and then challenged them with nasty bacterial infections and they were actually using bubonic plague as one example and also listeria as another example and they found that if you infected mice with a fatal dose of these bacterial infections after they'd been infected with the mouse equivalent of glandular fever or CMV, a glandular fever-like virus, the mice all survived. But when they infected mice that had never been infected with these agents, the mice all died of these bacterial infections. So the researchers are suggesting that because these viruses are so well adapted to living in a mammal, in other words, in a, a mouse or a human, we have evolved to live alongside them and almost the immune system has almost evolved to expect the virus to infect you at some time and this virus is therefore in some way manipulating the immune system to make it stronger so we're almost relying on being infected with these very common viruses now in order to strengthen our immune system and give us a better ability to fight off certain bacteria so what looked like it was a virus that was a real pain in the ass is now turning out possibly to be a virus that should come in from the cold including possibly cold sores herpes simplex I gather you've got a couple of questions that have come through via the uh, Twitter page. Actually, this is on Facebook. On and, Facebook. Uh, I say hello to everyone who's uh, listening via our Facebook page. It's uh, Naked Scientists, if anyone wants to come and join us. Um, Titus J.C. Ung Thesira, I hope I said that correctly, wonders how do 3D televisions work? Well, actually, there's quite an interesting article I was reading the other day about a, a company that was spun off in America. And I'm not sure if they're still doing this, but they had quite an interesting three-dimensional TV concept. It was an interesting system because what they do is they take this, uh, you can imagine like a paddle. If you had a sort of lollipop, which was a flat piece of paper on, on a stick, mm -hmm. what they do is to project onto that um, various images. So they, they have a very special computer program that breaks down an image into a series of pulses that they can flash onto this thing uh, from various directions. And it spins very quickly. And because it spins very, very fast, if you walk around it, what what you're getting is the is a, effectively a three-dimensional image because it's projecting onto this card the image as the card spins. And so you keep seeing all these different images being um, projected from slightly different angles. And because your eyes can't go as fast as the image is being updated on this spinning piece of card, uh, there's this latency effect. And so your brain sees this as a three-dimensional object instead of a two-dimensional object. So that's one clever way of making a 3D TV picture. Now, one little question here from uh, Dave in Lutterworth. He says, um, why is it, Dr Chris, that as you get uh, older, the time seems to go faster? Definitely happening to me. Where has this year gone? <laughs> I know. You know, it was Christmas, and now it seems to be almost August. But... Um, it would appear that this is a, a, a completely common phenomenon across all ages, sexes, cultures, creeds, doesn't matter who you look at, everyone experiences this, time speeding up as we get older. And psychologists think that part of this is novelty. Um, because when we're younger and we are less experienced and world-wise, everything tends to be processed at a conscious level because everything is new. And the brain is constantly saying, well, have I seen this before? Do I recognise this? You know, what is new? And in the course of helping us to become better at coping with everyday life, because there's so much stuff going on in the average life, the brain starts filling in more and more of the gaps in everyday life for you. So there's less novelty. And when there's less novelty, as far as you're concerned, you're paying less attention to things. So, therefore, you can do lots more things all at once. And, therefore, time seems to go zipping by because you're not applying conscious thought to all of the things that are happening to you. And it's that conscious thought that seems to make things 
difficult, it makes things seem tough and hard. And when they're being done for you subconsciously, life's a lot easier, so things go faster. So that's why kids, if they just go out running around the garden during the day, they'll feel knackered at the end of the day, because everything has been a new experience for them. Let's go to uh, one that you've got there. I, I gather it's about hair colour, and me being one yes. that colours me hair, go on. <laughs> well, this is from Fevzi Hassan, also on Facebook, who says, Why does hair get significantly lighter in colour when we go out in the sun? Arm hairs, leg hairs, hairs on the head. Why do we get tanned as well? Well, both those answers revolve around the pigment melanin. Been in the news this week because there was that interesting case of the baby born to two mm. Nigerian parents who was basically the wrong colour, a very white baby to two very black parents. Melanin is at the heart of this. Melanin is a dark pigment. It's made from an amino acid called tyrosine, which we take in from our diet. And melanin is very strongly attenuating of ultraviolet rays. So it's a way of protecting the cells and the deep layer of the skin from being basted in ultraviolet that can damage DNA and cause skin cancer. So when you're out in the sun, a little bit of damage happens to the skin, and this encourages cells called melanocytes that make melanin to increase their production of melanin so you have more in the skin and you're protected. Now, hair does the same thing. Hair protects the top of your head where there would be a lot of incident sunlight, and you have the same cells, melanocytes, in the follicles of the hair which add melanin to the hair matrix so as the hair which is just basically dead tissues keratin same stuff your fingernails are made from when that hair is made you add melanin to it and that colors the hair making it dark and it also therefore acts as a protection by soaking up sunlight and stopping it burning the top of your head unless you go bald, um, in which case you lose that ability and you have to wear a hat. There are two different flavours of melanin. There's pheomelanin, which is a yellow colour, and eumelanin, which is the dark colour. So people who have different coloured hair have different amounts and different ratios of, of those two different melanins. But like all things, melanin, which is soaking up ultraviolet rays, can actually get damaged by sunlight because the energy in the solar radiation is sufficient to damage the chemical bonds in the melanin molecules and this breaks apart the molecule and if the molecule falls apart it can no longer attenuate the light so it stops looking a dark colour and looks a lot lighter because it starts to reflect more light back off at you making it appear lighter than absorbing light which is what makes it look dark and so it's just the degradation of the molecule with exposure to light and also exposure to other chemicals like hair bleaches and other chemicals that might, might damage the melanin. Now, uh, very quickly, our last one here. Um, David and Fincham, about hair colour. My hair was nigh on white. Does this mean it reflects the sun more than when I was younger and had darker hair? Yes, it does, because white hair means that you're reflecting lots of wavelengths of light back towards the observer. Black hair means that you are absorbing light and reflecting much less so as the hair loses its melanization, its melanin pigment, and becomes a lighter colour, it therefore starts reflecting more light off and absorbing less, but it also goes translucent, so more light will get through the hair to get to the underlying skin. So you will, unfortunately, as well as reflecting a bit of light off, you will, unfortunately, get more light penetrating the tissue and get more sunburn. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget, you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 
thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.